Welcome to TopCast, episode 50, the big 5-0, if you're listening to this on audio anyway. On YouTube, I'm not sure what episode I'm up to, but I do know that we're doing chapter 16 of the beginning of infinity today, the evolution of creativity, and we're in our third part, the third and final part today. And so let's just get into it um, after just recapping what was happening in the last episode. And we're talking about the evolution of creativity. We're talking about memes and how memes come into existence and how the capacity for meme evolution occurs. And David is comparing what goes on with animals who are able to imitate parrots who parrot, apes who ape, for example. If either of these animals were listening to a lecture of some sort, then they would be able to repeat some of the content, but it's not because they would have exactly acquired the memes themselves, in other words, acquired the meaning of the ideas, but instead they'd just be repeating the noises, If in the case of a parrot. So if this parrot is, say, listening to a lecturer, what David goes on to say, quote, is, suppose that the lecturer had repeatedly returned to a certain key idea and had expressed it with different words and gestures each time. The parrots or apes, job, would be that much harder than imitating only the first instance. The students, much easier, because to a human observer, each different way of putting the idea would convey additional knowledge. Pause there, just my reflection. So this is an important insight about one of the other categorical differences between humans and other animals. A parrot that repeats what they've heard at a lecture hasn't understood anything. So they don't acquire the meaning, the meme that's actually there. But of course, a person may, you know, there are situations where, for example, a person might simply learn by rote the content of a lesson or a lecture and thereby haven't really acquired the meme as such. They haven't acquired the meaning behind the idea, but they may be able to verbatim quote the words. This isn't how learning typically happens with people. As David has just said there, if a lecturer was to repeat the same idea over and again, but using different words, using a different approach each time, it'd be that much harder for a parrot to parrot what they're saying, because a parrot only imitates the same thing over and over again. But a student would probably find it easier Easier because each different way of explaining the same concept contains additional knowledge. And I suppose this is just sort of a meta comment on that. A lot of people have learned Popper from David Deutsch because he has repackaged, re-explained, improved in certain ways what Popper has said through the fabric of reality and the beginning of infinity. And so people have been able to pick up those memes that otherwise would have been elusive to them. Popper does famously write with great clarity in comparison to other philosophers, I should hasten to add. But despite that high level of clarity, just with the passage of time, language changes, problem situations change. And so therefore, a modern philosopher like David Deutsch, who re-explains what Popper is saying, is sometimes a better avenue into understanding those ideas than the original philosopher, let's say. Also, just on this philosophy of education thing that's kind of behind this uh, short section that I've read from the beginning of infinity just there, it really points to something about 
the differences among teachers. And you can think back to the teachers that you had at either school or university. And it illuminates this idea that there is such a thing as good teaching or good explaining. You know, Feynman, Richard Feynman, was famous for being good at explaining difficult physics concepts. And the best teachers, of course, have a variety of different ways, at least two, of explaining something. If they only have one, well, then they're not a particularly good teacher, are they? They might very well understand it themselves and might be able to regurgitate that explanation for someone else. But if that explanation doesn't really suit the situation that you're in, the kind of knowledge that you have at that particular time, or the problem situation you find yourself in, then, of course, you might not be able to pick it up as easily as some other teacher who might have exactly the same kind of knowledge and be able to pass it on in a way that suits you better. People talk about learning styles and that kind of thing. It's really just what your background knowledge happens to be at that particular time. There are, there are certainly some teachers out there who teach by the textbook in both school and university, from my recollection anyway. And these people are kind of an impediment to learning. They don't really assist because they're kind of just getting in the way of the textbook. You may as well just read the textbook if all they're going to do is to simply cleave very closely to what the text happens to say. On the other hand, if they can refer you to the text and then explain sections of the text in a way that speaks to you a little bit more clearly, then all the better. And if they have three or four such approaches to explaining, then all the better still. And if they can make it entertaining and funny, then you really have one of those rare teachers that can inspire your learning in a particular area and also help you with your particular problem situation of wanting to find out how the world works in that particular area that you happen to be interested in. But if they're dry and they're just saying on page 62, here's what it says, or certainly when I, I what I remember at school is we had people who would put up overhead projector things and then they would just read off the overhead projector. I had one of these in like second year physics at uni, uh, learning relativity, and this lecturer would just project the lesson uh, onto the screen and literally read the uh, overhead projection screen. It was terrible. I mean, it was terrible. But, you know, at the same university, I had some absolutely brilliant lecturers. And, and <laughs> the funny thing was, and this shows you how individual learning happens to be, one of my favourite lecturers was basically one of the most disorganised as well. Would arrive to the class just seemingly not knowing where we were up to exactly, would have a hazy idea would never really refer to the official curriculum as it was published and would, would often fill us in on their own particular area of obscure research. It would seem obscure, but of course, in order to understand the problem they were trying to solve, they would then go and explain all the foundational things that were beneath this particular problem, all the knowledge that one needed in order to come at this problem from different angles. And so by the end of the lecture, we would have a great understanding of this particular niche area of knowledge, this this area of specialty that this particular lecturer was interested in. And that was the great part about, of course, going to university is you have these specialists there working on very particular, fundamental, foundational or specialised problems that you need expert knowledge in order to try and tackle. To some extent, you need expert knowledge. And so they would be able to lift you up to their... Um, to, to where they were at, to the amount of knowledge they had by explaining what the problem was and all the things beneath that problem that had led to that problem. And so this was the, the kind of lecturer I absolutely loved. 
And I remember at a lunch break one time having a discussion with fellow students about this and there were other students there who, yes, agreed that this particular lecturer was fantastic because they were funny and engaging and went off topic and talked about tang- and went off on tangents and gave anecdotes and it was just um, all, and all the stuff that was related but not necessarily central to the official curriculum. And this was precisely the thing that other people in the class couldn't stand and would say, that lecturer is my least favourite of all because they're disorganised and they go off topic. I just want to learn what's in the official curriculum so that I know what to study for the assessments, for the exams, so that I can pass the exams and get good marks. And of course, this, this illustrates a great difficulty with um, that style of education anyway, having classes of that kind. But I guess in a free market where people are going to choose amongst universities, the only solution I can think of, and I don't know what the solution otherwise to this would be, is to have those two approaches there, the kind of style where a student wants to go along and learn from an expert in an entertaining way to sit there and listen to the lecture, kind of like a TED Talk kind of thing where um, you're actually able to interact one-on-one with the person giving the TED Talk and to talk about all of the questions you might have that the lecture itself doesn't particularly answer. That's an ideal kind of learning, I would suggest. Or there might be other people whose style of learning is just, I want to know what the official curriculum is so that I can get credentialed, so that I can pass the exam and get the certificate to hang on the wall to say that I have this particular degree or whatever. Then maybe universities could offer these two different sorts. Or maybe lecturers could advertise themselves as being of one of these two different extremes or somewhere in the middle so you'd know what you're getting. But of course, at the moment at university or at of course, at school, you don't know what you're getting. You can't really pick. <laughs> well, there's, there's an extent to which, of course, you can pick. You can look at the, the list of lecturers and the list of subjects and then pick that way. But sometimes maybe you like the lecturer but not the subject or vice versa. So <laughs> this is a great challenge for universities. I don't know what the solution is, but I know it's certainly a challenge at the moment because the only reason for the continued existence of that kind of university thing is because of this whole idea of credentialing, of getting someone an official degree to say that you are now officially qualified in this particular area, even though your level of understanding of that area might be quite poor. Because if you are that kind of student that just wants to learn the knowledge required to pass the exams, then really the best idea is to simply practice exam Um, questions over and over and over again until you become proficient at answering exam questions, which might not be a very good indication of what's happening in the real world when you actually have to solve a problem, in other words, a thing no one knows the answer to, rather than just a puzzle, which is a question in an exam, for example, that someone already knows the answer to, and you have to come up with the correct answer rather than the best possible answer given all of the unknowns, which is what reality and finding stuff out in science and various other areas of knowledge is, in fact, all about. Okay, whatever the case, that was an extremely long diversion about something barely related to this chapter. So let's go back to the chapter. Just to recap, we've got a parrot and we have a student listening to a lecturer and David is explaining the difference between how they both acquire the capacity to repeat what the lecturer is saying, whether word by word or the actual meaning of the, the lesson that the lecturer is delivering. David writes, quote, Alternatively, suppose that the lecturer had consistently misspoken in a way that altered the meaning and had then made one correction at the end. The parrot would copy the wrong version. The student would not, even if the lecturer 
had never corrected the error at all, a human listener might still have a good chance of understanding the idea that was in the lecturer's mind, and again, without imitating any behaviour. If someone else reported the lecture, but in a way that contained severe misconceptions, a human listener might still be able to detect what the lecturer meant. By explaining the reporter's misconceptions as well as the lecturer's intention, just as a conjuring expert might be able to detect what really happened during a trick, given only a false account from the audience of what they saw. Rather than imitating behaviour, a human being tries to explain it, to understand the ideas that caused it, which is a special case of the general human objective of explaining the world. When we succeed in explaining someone's behaviour, and we approve of the underlying intention, we may subsequently behave like that person in the relevant sense. But if we disapprove, we might behave unlike that person. Since creating explanations is second nature, or rather first nature to us, we can easily misconstrue the process of acquiring a meme as imitating what we see. Using our explanations, we see right through the behaviour to the meaning. Parrots copy distinctive sounds. Apes copy purposeful movements of a certain limited class. But humans do not especially copy any behaviour. They use conjecture, criticism and experiment to create good explanations of the meaning of things, other people's behaviour, their own and that of the world in general. This is what creativity does. And if we end up behaving like other people, it is because we have rediscovered the same idea. Okay, I'm skipping a little. And then David goes on to a subsection which is titled, Both Puzzles Have the Same Solution. And he writes, In this chapter I have presented two puzzles. The first is why human creativity was evolutionarily advantageous at a time when there was almost no innovation. The second is how human memes can possibly be replicated given that they have content that the recipient never observes. I think that both these puzzles have the same solution. What replicates human memes is creativity. And creativity was used while it was evolving to replicate memes. In other words, it was used to acquire existing knowledge, not to create new knowledge. But the mechanism to do both things is identical, and so in acquiring the ability to do the former, we automatically become able to do the latter. It was a momentous example of reach, which made possible everything that is uniquely human. Pausing there my reflection on that and David's going to get into this in the very next paragraph but just to emphasize what's being said here the ability to acquire memes human creativity enables us to acquire memes existing knowledge things that are already known to the populace to other people to the culture and so on so creativity allows us to replicate those memes the existing knowledge and maintain a tradition to a large extent. However, that same capacity to create, to create, to recreate the memes, to replicate the memes, also gave us the ability to create new knowledge that no one had ever had before. So that's a really interesting capacity of the human mind, a unique capacity of the human mind, and as we'll get into, a capacity that is universal in its ability to create knowledge. In other words, Whatever knowledge can be created, can be created by us. Explanatory knowledge. Next paragraph, David says, quote, A person acquiring a meme faces the same logical challenge as a scientist. Both must discover a hidden explanation. For the former, it is an idea in the minds of other people. For the latter, a regularity or law of nature. 
Neither person has direct access to this explanation, but both have access to evidence with which explanations can be tested. The observed behaviour of people who hold the meme and physical phenomena conforming to the law. The puzzle of how one can possibly translate behaviour back into a theory that contains its meaning is therefore the same puzzle as where scientific knowledge comes from. And the idea that memes are copied by imitating their holders' behaviour is the same mistake as empiricism or inductivism or Lamarckism. They all depend on there being a way of automatically translating problems like the problem of planetary motions or how to reach leaves on tall trees or be invisible to one's prey into their solutions. In other words, they assume that the environment in the form of an observed phenomenon or a tall tree, say, can instruct minds or genomes in how to meet its challenges. Then David goes on to quote Popper, and Popper wrote, quote, The inductivist or Lamarckian approach operates with the idea of instruction from without or from the environment, but the critical or Darwinian approach only allows instruction from within, from within the structure itself. I contend that there is no such thing as instruction from without the structure. We do not discover new facts or new effects by copying them or by inferring them inductively from observation or by any other method of instruction by the environment. We use, rather, the method of trial and the elimination of error. As Ernst Gombrich says, making comes before matching. The active production of a new trial structure comes before its exposure to eliminating tests. That's from the myth of the framework. Then David goes on to say, Popper could just as well have written, we do not acquire new memes by copying them, or by inferring them inductively from observation, or by any other method of imitation or instruction by the environment. The transmission of human-type memes, memes whose meaning is not mostly predefined within the receiver, cannot be other than a creative activity on the part of the receiver. Memes, like scientific theories, are not derived from anything. They are created afresh by the recipient. They are conjectural explanations, which are then subjected to criticism and testing before being tentatively adopted. This same pattern of creative conjecture, criticism and testing generates inexplicit as well as explicit ideas. In fact, all creativity does, for no idea can be represented entirely explicitly. When we make an explicit conjecture, it has an inexplicit component whether we are aware of it or not, and so does all criticism. Pause there, just to my reflection on that. I've often been asked in my, uh, having done this for a while now, explaining uh, aspects of the beginning of infinity, why it is we'll never get a final theory of such and such. Usually it's physics. Why can't we get to the final fundamental theory of physics? Okay, and, and one response is that I often give. Like, for example, um, you know, people talk about, well, what is the physical theory that might unite general relativity and quantum theory? People are trying string theory. People are trying various other approaches as well. String theory is probably the most famous example of one, although it's not one theory. There are many different forms of string theory when you look into it i don't fully un i don't claim to understand string theory however what i would say about that is that even if it were successful it couldn't be a final theory of physics it wouldn't be the last word on physics there would always still be more to know even at the foundations because you would always be able to ask why is string theory why does string theory have the form that it does there'll be unknowns there in the same way that the uh, the laws of physics that we have now have some 
really deep questions about them. My favourite kind of question about the form that the laws of physics take are the constants of nature. Where did these constants of nature come from? Why do they have the values that they have? Um, you know, the, 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 the universal gravitational constant that appears in not only Newton's law of gravity, it, it appears in general relativity as well, okay? Big G, which is something like 6.67 times 10 to the power of minus 11. Don't worry about what the units are. Anyway, this, this, this number, the value of this, okay, because you can, you can actually change the number if you change what the units are, ignoring that complication. This number tells you something about the strength of gravity, not just here on Earth, but throughout the universe, okay, there is this number here on Earth, 9.81, which is the acceleration, the local acceleration due to gravity here near the surface of the Earth at sea level and so on and so forth, okay. That number easily changes if you change your location around the solar system and around um, the universe. That will change depending upon what um, cosmological body you happen to be standing on at any particular time and how high you are, um, all that aside, the universal gravitational constant is universal. It applies everywhere throughout the entire universe. And the question is, why does it have the value that it has? Why is it that strong and not stronger or weaker? And many, this is the fine-tuning problem. And if we go back through my episodes of Beginning Infinity, there is a section there. There is one of the episodes there is on fine-tuning. I'll put that up on the screen for you if you're interested more about this. It's certainly been a great fascination of mine having taken on astronomy, looking into all of these different constants of nature. Another one is simply the, the, the mass of the electron um, or how, how strongly the strong force couples together the protons in a nucleus. Okay, All of these constants of nature come together such that we have a really interesting universe. We have life in the universe. Now, there is no physical law that gives us those numbers, that is able to predict what those numbers are going to be. Those numbers are empirically known. You have to measure them. You have to use scientific apparatus. You have to go into a laboratory and actually figure out what these um, numbers are. In the case of G, the universal gravitational constant, there's many ways you can measure it. So the famous one is, is the Cavendish experiment. The Cavendish experiment was done in the 1700s, I think, something like that. And um, it's basically the purpose of it is to find G. And this is how we know G. We have to go out there into the universe and to use physical objects and find out what these things are. So it doesn't come from a theory. So there must be a deeper theory. We Most you know, scientists, physicists think, well, this is, a, this is a question. This is an open scientific question. Why is it that value and not something else? And so far, there's this kind of two approaches, neither of which... I don't think anyone believes. One is, well, the universe has been designed this way. So there's a god or a simulation which has selected those particular values so that conscious observers can be here and wonder about that question. The other is that there is a megaverse. There is a multiverse of multiverses, okay? A higher order of multiverse. We're not talking about the quantum multiverse, but rather a multiverse where every single possible, logically possible, physical law or something like that exists out there somewhere or other. And some of those selections happen to have, if when, you, when you put together those constants of nature in just the right way, will end up producing interesting chemistry and complicated life, like ourselves. So that could be a solution. Or you don't even need all the possible physical laws. You just need a multitude of them. You need enough of them such that at least one of them will produce 
us, okay? And so here we are to wonder about it because there's actually all the different sorts of physical laws with all the different values of these constants of nature are out there somewhere, most of which don't have life. And we happen to be in the one or few that do have life. And so that can be a solution. Now, these two solutions are poor because right? they 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 raise more questions than they answer where are these other universes how can we experimentally detect these other universes at the moment it seems like those other universes are basically the same category as god may as well believe in god they're both metaphysical claims so i happen to think and i think a lot of other scientists think as well is that well we don't yet know the theory it's kind of like we're at the position prior to when darwin came up with evolution by natural selection Prior to that, it was unimaginable to people that the appearance of design could arise without a designer. Okay, so Paley's famous comment about the watch, you pick up the watch in the field somewhere or other, you assume by looking at the intricate workings of its mechanism that therefore there must be a creator, a designer, a builder behind this watch that you find. So then, shouldn't it be the case that the human eye or the eyes of mammals and fish and birds, this is an even more intricate device of a kind, a more intricate thing that has appeared in nature. So therefore, if you're assuming that the watch has a watchmaker, you should definitely assume that life has a life maker and therefore God exists, that kind of thing. So people couldn't conceive of a way in which design could just arise it would otherwise seem like magic if you could say a watch just naturally appears according, acting under deterministic physical laws, then this seems astounding. It seems like there has to be a watchmaker. But of course, now we know in now we know of evolution by natural selection. We know that over time, life fills these niches, and these these niches get filled with organisms that are fit in that particular niche, and if one goes extinct, then a new one will arise and have features that may be more or less different depending upon how much the environment has changed over time, so on and so forth. We know about neo-Darwinism, evolution by natural selection. It was a theory prior to which people just couldn't conceive of how it would be possible for this kind of thing to happen. Now, actually, there is a third way in which people talk about these concepts of nature. And one of them is, and this is, I think, Lee Smolin's idea. You can look up Lee Smolin. Lee Smolin talks about an evolutionary cosmology where um, black holes have this reverse side to them where there's like a white hole and out of the white hole comes a new Big Bang and a new universe. And these universes that are produced have slightly different constants of nature. And there's this evolutionary process whereby the universes that proliferate tend to be more similar to the ones that they have come from. So <laughs> these universes are giving birth via this black hole mechanism that is, you know, wherever you find a black hole, then that's a portal to another universe. So the theory goes, kind of thing. I don't really, I haven't looked into too much of the details. But that universe that you go into once you've gone through the black hole then has properties somewhat similar to the universe that we're in right now, but the constants of nature are ever so slightly changed. And so in this way, you can have this evolutionary proliferation of universes, uh, perhaps beginning with ours, perhaps not beginning with ours, whatever the case, some of those universes that are birthed from black hole events will have... Uh, conditions such that life will arise, but not all of them. Okay, and so this is a kind of a third approach, but it's not a new mode of explanation, really, is it? It's the same kind of explanation as evolution by natural selection. So 
in David Deutsch's terminology, what we really want is a new mode of explanation. That would be my guess. A new mode of explanation will give us the explanation of why the contents of nature have the values that they do. And it's a, something that we can't imagine just at the moment. Well, we could. Someone out there is going to come up with the answer to this. Okay, so they can imagine it. I can't imagine what it will be. Um, if you have any ideas, um, perhaps comment. In, I've never asked for people to comment in the YouTube <laughs> comments before. Perhaps com comment in the YouTube comments, okay? Tell me what your explanation for why the concepts of nature are the way they are. Don't mention God. Don't mention the super megaverse. And don't mention evolution by natural selection. See if you can come up with a new mode of explanation that no one's ever heard of before because um, that could be Nobel Prize winning type science. But that, that long diversion is... <laughs> really off track is just to say that um, we don't yet have a final theory of physics we never will because of that reason now because we can we'll need to know what those concepts of nature are and whether or not string theory can give us that i don't know whatever the case the other approach to this why we can't have a final theory of physics or anything else is as david says there quote he says when we make an explicit conjecture, string theory would be an explicit conjecture, as would general relativity, any scientific theory, it has an inexplicit component whether we are aware of it or not, and so does all criticism. So this inexplicit component of a theory is always there and can be made more explicit over time, but you can never get rid of it altogether. But the inexplicit component is something that needs further explanation that is kind of it's not that it's unknown in any complete sense but it does mean that you aren't there at the final theory because you've got certain things that you can't explicitly explain and surely a final theory would be perfectly explicit if it's not perfectly explicit then someone can always say what do you mean by this particular thing ad infinitum so you can't get to the end you can't get to the final answer because there is always inexplicit content no matter what the idea happens to be and just to tie this up into a neat little bow even if we did have the final theory of physics or the final theory of everything we couldn't possibly know that um, i don't think there can be a final theory of physics for the reasons i said because you can always ask why is that the final theory does that final theory tell you why it's the final theory and if so why can't we ask the question about why that explanation of why it's the final theory is in fact true okay so we can always ask the deeper question about how do you know that why is that the case and so on anyway back to the book and david writes thus as has so often happened in the history of universality the human capacity for universal explanation did not evolve to have a universal function it evolved simply to increase the volume of mimetic information that our ancestors could acquire and the speed and accuracy with which they could acquire it. But since the easiest way for evolution to do that was to give us a universal ability to explain through creativity, that is what it did. This epistemological fact provides not only the solution of the two puzzles I mentioned above, but also the reason for the evolution of human creativity and therefore the human species in the first place. It must have happened something like this. In early pre-human societies, there were only very simple means, the kind that apes now have, though perhaps with a wider repertoire of copyable elementary behaviours. 
Those memes were about practical things like how to get food that was otherwise inaccessible. The value of such knowledge must have been high, so this created a ready-made niche for any adaptation that would reduce the effort required to replicate memes. Creativity was the ultimate adaptation to fill that niche. As it increased, further adaptations co-evolved, such as an increase in memory capacity to store more memes, finer motor control, and specialised brain structures for dealing with language. As a result, the meme bandwidth, the amount of memetic information that could be passed from each generation to the next, increased too. Memes also became more complex and sophisticated. This is why and how our species evolved, and why it evolved rapidly at first. Memes gradually came to dominate our ancestors' behaviour. Meme evolution took place, and like all evolution, this was always in the direction of greater faithfulness. This meant becoming ever more anti-rational. At some point, meme evolution achieved static societies. Presumably, they were tribes. Consequently, all those increases in creativity never produced streams of innovations. Innovation remained imperceptibly slow, even as the capacity for it was increasing rapidly. Even in a static society, memes still evolve due to imperceptible errors of replication. They just evolve more slowly than anyone can notice. Imperceptible errors cannot be suppressed. They would generally evolve towards greater fidelity of replication, as usual with evolution, and hence to greater staticity of the society. Pause there, my reflection. So if you're in an ancient tribe, in fact, a really, really ancient tribe, a prehistoric ancient tribe, you know, you're coexisting, you're alongside sort of Neanderthals, then you're using tools. And the way in which you're able to use a tool is because memes have been passed on within the culture where you find yourself. And perhaps making these tools is part of a ritual. So it might serve a dual purpose. If you make a spear ever more sharp, then you are adhering to the culture's memes ever better. And so you can't be accused of not trying to enact the memes of the society, so you won't be cast out. Similarly, making the spear ever sharper is going to actually have practical use. And so there's going to be this dual reason why greater staticity of memes, the greater staticity in the society can result in very gradual evolutionary change of the memes, but nothing creative actually being done. So the ever sharper spear might actually have some practical benefits, but if you are required only to ever make ever sharper spears, then you will never innovate to make a bow and arrow or make anything else better that might be actually better for capturing animals when you go hunting. And so your tribal ancient static society is at real risk of going extinct. Um, it can remain static for a very long period of time, but as soon as the problem comes along, which requires creativity in order to solve, you are singularly, and all the members of your tribe are singularly, unable to do anything about it, even though you have a creative capacity, because the creative capacity is latent in a way, uh, and you're not using it. Sorry about the traffic noise. Back to the book, and David writes, Status in such a society is reduced by transgressing people's expectations of proper behaviour and is improved by meeting them. There would have been the expectations of parents, priests, chiefs and potential mates or whoever controlled mating in that society. 
who were themselves conforming to the wishes and expectations of the society at large. Those people's opinions would determine one's ability to eat, thrive and reproduce, and hence the fate of one's genes. Pause there, just reflecting on that. And that's like an aha moment, at least it, it should be if you're encountering this for the first time. So if a human type creature, <laughs> or very early humans, let's say, who are evolving the capacity to replicate memes over time, then those early people who, are, uh, who have got certain genes which allow for them to replicate memes, then the ones who are able to replicate memes more faithfully are the ones who eat, thrive and reproduce. And so therefore their genes for the ability to replicate memes are being passed on to their children. Okay, and so the ability to replicate memes then becomes, there's a selection pressure on that. There's a niche to be filled there. And we're going to come to niches in just a moment. But um, I might just flag the fact that uh, in a recent TopCast, not really related uh, much to the beginning of infinity, just more of a personal reflection of mine on the possibility of alien life out there, I mentioned various arguments. And one of the arguments I mentioned, because these are just wild speculations for the most part no one knows much about the possibility of alien life you know the, whether the biology will be the same as ours or different to ours and so on and so forth but one of the arguments uh, from an academic called charlie lineweaver is that it's assumed there's an intelligence niche but if we look at the history of life on Earth, it appears as though this intelligent niche has only arisen once, and maybe that is just a very fortuitous happenstance occurrence, and we shouldn't expect it to ever happen again. Maybe the intelligence niche doesn't actually appear out there in the universe anywhere, even if there is life teeming throughout many planets in the universe. Because for a long time here on Earth, there wasn't really an intelligence niche to be filled um, because there was no intelligence anywhere. Um, the intelligence niche is there is once it's filled by intelligence. Anyway, that's slightly off topic. Let's go back to the book. And David writes, But how does one discover the wishes and expectations of other people? They might issue commands, but they could never specify every detail of what they expected, let alone every detail of how to achieve it. When one is commanded to do something or expected to as a condition for being considered worthy of food or mating, for example, one might remember seeing an already respected person doing the same thing, and one might try to emulate that person. To do that effectively, one would have to understand what the point of doing it was and to try to achieve that as best one could. One would impress one's chief, priest, parent or potential mate by replicating and following their standards of what one should strive for. One would impress the tribe as a whole by replicating their idea, or the ideas of the most influential among them, of what was worthy and acting accordingly. Hence, paradoxically, it requires creativity to thrive in a static society. Creativity that enables one to be less innovative than other people. And that is how primitive static societies, which contained pitifully little knowledge and existed only by suppressing innovation, constituted environments that strongly favoured the evolution of an ever greater ability to innovate. From the perspective of those hypothetical extraterrestrials observing our ancestors, a community of advanced apes with memes before the evolution of creativity began would have looked superficially similar to their descendants after the jump to universality. The latter would merely have had more memes, but the mechanism keeping those memes replicating faithfully would have changed profoundly. 
The animals of the earlier community would have been relying on their lack of creativity to replicate their memes. The people, despite living in a static society, would be relying entirely on their creativity. Pause there, my reflection. So what he said there? Well, so there has been a jump to universality. There, there was a species of human-like, but not human, human-like ape that had memes but no creativity. Then a species arose, human, that did have creativity. And I say human because here we can just use it as a kind of synonym for people, people being universal explainers, people being able to create explanations, and people being able to form models in their mind of anything in the universe, anything that's out there in the universe, we can come to understand. Insofar as uh, other animals and other species of ape can form models at all of the world around them, then it's only of their local environment and of the things that the genes might have coded the memes that they have for. Okay, Maybe my cat as it wanders around the house has a model of the house. It's like a visual image or a map, something like that. It knows how to get around. But the cat has absolutely no capacity whatsoever to form a model like the standard model of particle physics or a model of what an economic system is all about. Okay, So we can do that because we are universal explainers. It doesn't matter what the phenomena is in reality. We can develop an explanation of it and have a model of it, whereas insofar as other creatures are able to build models at all in their minds, and they must be able to build models of some kind, there is a finite repertoire. The cat would probably reach a limit of being able to find its way around the physical environment once the physical environment got too large. And this is probably why creatures like cats don't tend to wander too far from their homes, <laughs> that even if the cat is allowed to go outside, it tends to stay within a fairly... Um, short radius of wherever its actual house is and wherever the food is. Probably because it would it understands or its genes understand that if it goes any further, it gets lost. <laughs> it's probably its its RAM on its little brain uh, quickly gets filled up. Anyway, so the point is that prior to whatever the first universal explainer was, you had apes that relied on memes and then you had universal explainers that relied on creativity. However, Superficially, these two creatures would have seemed exactly the same because the memes would have been precisely the same. The content of the memes would have been the same. It's just that in the second case, now the possibility for an infinite growth of knowledge existed there, was in that creature. It was able to explain, actually explain stuff and create new memes, whereas uh, the, the previous one only had a finite repertoire of memes. They could change, but only very, very slowly and not about anything at all just about the kind of things that happen to be in its genes. Okay, let's go back to the book. And David writes, As with all jumps to universality, the way in which the jump emerged out of a gradual change is interesting to think about. Creativity is a property of software. As I said, we could be running AI programs on our laptop computers today if we knew how to write or evolve such programs. Like all software, it would require the computer to have certain hardware specifications in order to be able to process the required amount of data in the required time. It so happened that the hardware specifications that would make creativity practicable were included in those that were being heavily favoured for pre-creative meme replication. The principal one would have been memory capacity. The more one could remember, the more memes one could enact, and the more accurately one could enact them. 
but there may have also been hardware abilities such as mirror neurons for imitating a wider range of elementary actions than apes could ape. For instance, the elementary sounds of a language. It would have been natural for such hardware assistance for language abilities to be evolving at the same time as the increased meme bandwidth. So by the time creativity was evolving, there would already have been significant co-evolution between genes and memes. Genes evolving hardware to support more and better memes, and memes evolving to take over ever more of what had previously been genetic functions such as choice of mate and methods of eating, fighting and so on. Therefore, my speculation is that the creativity program is not entirely inborn, it is a combination of genes and memes. The hardware of the human brain would have been capable of being creative and sentient, conscious and all those other things, long before any creative program existed. Considering a sequence of brains during this period, the earliest ones capable of supporting creativity would have required very ingenious programming to fit the capacity into the barely suitable hardware. As the hardware improved, creativity could have been programmed more easily until the moment when it became easy enough actually to be done by evolution. We do not know what was being gradually increased in that approach to a universal explainer. If it did, we could program one tomorrow. Just pause there, just um, my reflection on the part where David writes that speculates that the creativity program is not entirely inborn, a combination of genes and memes. What this, what this doesn't mean is that, therefore, creativity of the human kind necessarily requires the wetware of a brain, a particular kind of hardware. No, that's not the case. You'll still be able to, physically it has to be the case, that we can put the creative algorithm, whatever it is, into a silicon computer. Why must that be the case? Because of the universality of computation, that any physical process, David Deutsch proved this, remember, um, and in fact, it kind of goes back to Turing as well, Alan Turing, any physical process can be modeled uh, as a computation. So whatever the physical thing is that's happening, um, you can write a computer algorithm in principle to capture that. For only a certain number of things have we actually ever done that. Um, of course, okay, we can model you know, how cars work, therefore we have car computer games, we can model how an aeroplane works, therefore we have uh, aircraft simulators, um, how the planets move, we can do modelling of how the motion of the solar system, but we haven't written the program for a, 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 a person, for a human yet, but... It's a physical process. <laughs> Whatever the brain is doing is, is physical, so therefore that can be done inside a computer. So it's possible, and it's provably possible, I should say. All right, back to the book. And this section is titled The Future of Creativity. And I'm, I'm skipping the first page or so of this particular section. And I'm jumping in where it says, not only is creativity necessary for human meme replication, it is also sufficient Deaf people and blind people and paralyzed people are still able to acquire and create human ideas to a more or less full extent. Hence, neither walking upright, nor fine motor control, nor the ability to pass sounds into words or any of those other adaptations, though they might have played a role historically in creating the conditions for human evolution, were functionally necessary to allow humans to become creative. Nor, therefore, are they philosophically significant in understanding what humans are today. Namely, people. Creative, universal explainers. Pause there. My reflection, this is a profound discovery in philosophy by David Deutsch. I do not know of any criticisms. I haven't actually heard any criticisms of this, by the way, from people who understand it at least, that this is 
human nature. This is an explanation of human nature. You know, it's, it's been a millennia-long search for what it is that separates people from other creatures. It's not, you know, people have talked about souls. People have talked about, oh, is it our ability to be moral? Is it um, our ability to think about aesthetics and science? Okay, all of these attempts have kind of been circling or aspects of this fundamental explanation. Namely, that we are universal explainers, universal explainers. Back to the book, David writes. It was specifically creativity that made the difference between ape memes, expensive in terms of the time and effort required to replicate them, and inherently limited in the knowledge that they were capable of expressing, and human memes, which are efficiently transmitted and universal in their expressive power. The beginning of creativity was, in that sense, the beginning of infinity. We have no way of telling, at present, how likely it was for creativity to begin to evolve in apes. But once it began to, there would automatically have been an evolutionary pressure for it to continue, and for other meme-facilitating adaptations to follow in its wake. This increase must have continued through all the static societies of prehistory. Okay, just pause there, and we're nearly at the final um, paragraph, but that's really cool there. And again, this kind of is sympathetic to the sentiments I expressed about Lineweaver and that other TopCast episode about life out there in the universe, Are We Alone? Where David has written here, he said, quote, We have no way of telling at present how likely it was for creativity to begin to evolve in apes. That's of fundamental importance to this question about the possibility of alien life out there. It could be the case that creativity really does evolve. Okay, frequently it crops up whenever life crops up. There is this question that I raised in that episode about, well, how come it only happened once? If it's so easy, okay, if the probability of it or the likelihood of it arising in apes or anywhere else is high, then why didn't it happen more than once? Um, How likely is it for apes to appear? Are apes necessary? Could lizards you know, evolve into intelligent creatures. Okay, you see this in science fiction type movies, right? And certain computer games where you have intelligent lizards or intelligent cats and so on, you know, that that assumes a kind of Lamarckism or a kind of direction to evolution. And specifically, it assumes that intelligence is this convergent feature of evolution, which it doesn't appear there's any evidence for whatsoever unlike the existence of the, the eye, which keeps on cropping up in lots of different species, or wings crop up in lots of different species as well. Uh, brains that are able to do mathematics in the way that we can and write poetry in the way that we can appear to have arisen only once. Creativity appears to have arisen only once, but we don't know how likely it was. Uh, David says that here, that here. So it could be really likely. It's just that Earth, life on Earth has been unlucky in a sense. And perhaps out there there's lots of other different kinds of universal explainers, or not. Perhaps it it arose once and that's it, throughout the universe, by the way. And for some of the mathematical arguments on that, uh, you see that episode. Anyway, final paragraph. Let's uh, begin that. David writes, 
The horror of static societies, which I described in the previous chapter, can now be seen as a hideous practical joke that the universe played on the human species. Our creativity, which evolved in order to increase the amount of knowledge that we could use, and which would immediately have been capable of producing an endless stream of useful innovations as well, was from the outset prevented from doing so by the very knowledge, the memes, that creativity preserved. The strivings of individuals to better themselves were from the outset perverted by a superhumanly evil mechanism that turned their efforts to exactly the opposite end, to thwart all attempts at improvement, to keep sentient beings locked in a crude, suffering state of eternity. Only the Enlightenment, hundreds of thousands of years later, and after who knows how many false starts, may at last have made it practical to escape from that eternity into infinity. That's the end of the chapter. Wow, what a great way to to end it. So, yes, our ancestors, our ape ancestors, the hominoid ancestors, for hundreds of thousands of years, perhaps millions, perhaps millions, for the overwhelming majority of human history, when we lived in tribes, in the African savannah, when we um, travelled, you know, up through Asia, eventually got into to Europe, etc., we weren't making profound improvements. You know, the prehistoric people were, were stuck in this static society, even though they had the capacity for creativity. The creativity was being used for nothing other than maintaining the status quo. What a hideous practical joke, as David says there. Remarkably, somehow, we, we, we escaped that. I don't know what's more astonishing, the fact that we evolved creativity at all, that we evolved creativity and it was used to maintain stasis in a society? Or is it more remarkable than either of those things that we actually escaped, that the creativity eventually enabled us to criticize, to actually build a critical tradition so that we could have a means by which to improve rapidly the um, ideas that we had. And then, of course, we get into, you know, beyond beyond that because sort of the, 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 the ability to improve certainly kind of began, certainly began, um, you know, uh, long before the, the Enlightenment, you know. That, well, the ability was always there, but there were improvements happening slowly. But clearly the Roman Empire was not like an ancient prehistoric tribe. A lot of improvements had happened. But they were not precisely a dynamic society, not what we would call a dynamic society. But the, the Roman Empire, from you know, for a long time there, just remained the same, and clearly was not generating an open-ended stream of innovative knowledge, because the Roman Empire fell apart. It wasn't able to solve its problems in time. Thus far, we have been able to. We the inheritors of the Enlightenment tradition, have been able to solve the problems so far at a rate faster than what they are coming at us. And we should be, we should be optimistic that this will continue. It's not necessary that it continues. There could be a problem that could wipe out civilization. But at the moment, so long as we maintain this tradition of criticizing everything in a panoptical way in all directions just criticizing everything not not keeping anything off limits except one thing except one thing as david deutsch points out that tradition itself we don't want to undermine the means of correcting errors we don't want to destroy that do not destroy the means of correcting errors or in other words 
do not undermine these traditions of criticism. And in our Western Enlightenment tradition, what that largely means is ensuring that the institutions that hitherto continue to provide the framework in which this open-ended stream of innovation can continue to happen, to ensure that those institutions remain strong and we don't undermine them and we don't remove them altogether because we don't know exactly how, what the reasons are that our society has remained so stable. We can go a good way to explaining why it is that it's able to make rapid progress, makes rapid progress because of this tradition of criticism. But why the entire society shouldn't fall apart, given that it's criticising everything all the time, well, that's harder. And so then we have these political institutions and traditions which are doing well at keeping things stable. Some are better than others. That's another topic. So for now, this has been episode five zero fifty. Um, I don't know when the the next episode will be coming out. I put out quite a few recently, but I look forward to to some new episodes. For now, until next time, bye bye.